Swivel. From Swivel Media and the Product Bus, this is The Bootstrap. I'm Scotty Allen. The Bootstrap is your source of news and resources all about building startups from scratch. For our first episode of 2024, I'm joined by Jane Del Rosso of The Business of Food to talk about taking the entrepreneurial leap. But first, let's take a look at some things you should know. Here's the Startup Rundown for Thursday, the 25th of November. If you're still working from home and worried you're going to have to change out of your gym jams and head back to the office, here's some good news. Teamwork software giant Atlassian has released a report marking their first 1,000 days as a distributed workforce. Their findings? Work from home not only boosts work hours, but also ramps up productivity. On releasing the report, Atlassian co-founder Scott Farquhar calls out the myth of office spontaneity as corporate folklore, citing as evidence that Atlassian's financial results are soaring and they're attracting talent globally with their work from anywhere mantra. The deep dive into remote work, titled Lessons Learned 1000 Days of Distributed at Atlassian, also includes a survey of 200 big companies by Atlassian that reveals the real productivity killers aren't about location, but rather back-to-back meetings, vague priorities, and endless notifications. Who would have thought? Members of Australia's technology sector have given a measured tick of approval to the federal government's move to regulate high-risk AI use cases amid warnings that widespread low trust in the technology is acting as a handbrake on business and public adoption. According to Startup Daily, Federal Minister for Industry and Science Ed Husick unveiled a new interim response for the safe and responsible development of AI last Wednesday. The response includes plans to work with developers to create a set of AI safety standards voluntary labeling and watermarking of AI-generated materials, and the development of options for mandatory AI guardrails. Critics of the response argue that while it identifies numerous risks posed by AI, it fails to raise viable or concrete solutions for them. The response also has been drafted quite late by world standards, with the EU creating its own back in 2020. Speaking of AI, a South Australian startup has developed an AI-empowered solution to the overuse of pesticides in the agricultural industry. According to InDaily, SA startup Flux is currently developing the Rover, an AI-programmed drone that will have the ability to weed paddocks 24 hours a day. Founder Jordi Kitsky has announced that Flux hopes to have the Rover market ready within 18 months. The company previously developed the Onyx Sprayer, which targets individual weeds, avoiding the need for farmers to spray their entire crops. Avoiding the need for farmers to spray their entire crops. Kitschke has thanked farmers around Australia for their support in the endeavor, both financially and practically, praising their willingness to innovate and adopt new methods of pest and disease management. In other news, the CEO of the Tech Council of Australia will step down at the end of this week after three years in the role. According to Startup Daily, Kate Pounder, the founder of the lobby group, is leaving her position in order to limit her travel commitments as she deals with a family health matter. TCA Chair Robin Denholm paid homage to Pounder, stating that she worked tirelessly to ensure that the tech sector has a strong and unified voice in the national stage. Kate still hopes to be an advocate for innovation and growth in the tech sector in Australia. And finally, and most head-shakingly, the Blackbird-backed startup Kiki is at the centre of controversy after announcing its latest pivot 
from subletting to the establishment of an all-female girls' club in New York City. According to the Australian Financial Review, co-founder Toby Thomas-Smith announced via Instagram that the company wants to help women avoid just living, not thriving. Oh, thanks, guys. The controversy has multiple layers, with some raising eyebrows at the idea of a girls' club created by a male-led startup. And there are others who've been quick to point out that VCs would usually not back a pivot with no proven revenue stream. Despite acknowledging the lack of a plan for revenue, Thomas Smith has stated that he expects the new startup, Girls Who NYC, to IPO within seven years. Unsurprisingly, the backlash has been rather significant, leading Blackbird to release a statement which seemed designed to distance themselves from the idea and the Kiki team. All I can say is, sure, and ew. And that's the Startup Roundup for this episode. We'll be back in a moment. Starting a business is a risk. It's a jump into the unknown. When do you know that it's time to take the leap and follow your entrepreneurial dream? Can you leave it too late? What are the pitfalls to look out for? Well, to discuss that and more, I am joined by Jane Del Rosso. Jane is a mentor with a passion for food and business. She took the leap many years ago, leaving her corporate career to train in cooking and pursue her passion for all things food and business. She established Australia's first dedicated kitchen incubator, My Other Kitchen, in 2008, and the business of food in 2017 to bring together her business savvy, her passion for food, and love of supporting other small businesses looking to get traction in the food industry. So Jane, welcome to The Bootstrap. Hi, Scotty. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. Really excited to have this convo. Why don't we start by having you tell us a little bit about your life before you became an entrepreneur? What were you doing before you made this life decision? <laughs> Sure, sure. So I didn't start my own business until I was 47 years old. So I'll just put that out there straight away. There was a lot of life before the business of food. (laughs) (laughs) But what I was doing was I, I moved into a corporate role and I was in corporate for, you know, 20 years or so. I started off in admin. I then went into project management and I worked with very large organizations like IBM, BHP. My last job was at Telstra working on projects that were mostly management focus and improvement focus, but never any techie kind of projects. It was all very practical, very management focused. Wow. So how do you go from there to what you're doing now? Yeah, interesting. (laughs) I changed direction in my mid-30s. I had always had an interest in food. And because I grew up in regional Tasmania, the access to universities and things was was a very limited. So I had to travel four and a half hours to the nearest university. And that didn't happen. I just went into, you know, something that I could manage. And so in my mid-30s, I went back to school. I went to William Anglis and I got my commercial cookery certificate with the hope of working in kitchens. Corporate skills and the food interest kind of marries it very well in, in the 15 years I've been having my other kitchen and the business of food. That's fantastic. I, I love that story for a number of reasons. One, because my original background is education in K to 12. Mm-hmm. 
And one of the things I think that we do very poorly in that space is we don't do a good job of laying out the different pathways that people take through that. We treat the end of school like the be all and end all, where what you do now is going to determine the rest of your life. And in fact, the only indicator of a good HR is that you got a good HR. It's not an indicator of future success. And obviously, there's a privilege of involved in the ability to go back and study that not everybody is afforded. But when mm-hmm. you have that opportunity to kind of reframe things, you can. And the other reason I love what you just said is because of the age that you started, because we have this real obsession with young white cisgendered male founders. And in fact, the stats say that founders over 50 have a, a much greater chance of success, but our ecosystem doesn't reflect that. So I'm already yeah. excited. <laughs> so yeah, fantastic. Tell me then, how did this go from that passion piece to something that you thought that you could turn into a business opportunity? Well, as I said, my, my first intention when I did my commercial cookery was actually to move into hospitality. And I did that for 10 years or so. I knew I was never going to work in restaurants because they were all 16-year-old men and, you know. Boys. That, those are boys. Yeah. Oh, yeah, boys. boys <laughs> men. Almost men. And, and that was not the scene that I was going to fit into. The next conversation about product market fit. But <laughs> it, so I worked in catering and I worked in big catering firms that did very large events. And that gave me a great sense of process, procedure, almost manufacturing kind of scenario that then worked very well in my other kitchen, which is the kitchen incubator I started in 2008. So that's how it kind of worked. It was like I'm interested in food. I'm also interested in process. My product management kind of corporate skills then played into it. And and it all kind of came together in the end. But the catalyst was I was living in the UK just for a year because my husband was on secondment, but because of my status, I could actually work over there. And when I came back, I was trying to plan what to do with my life. And I went, well, I could make a food product, but what would that be? And I started exploring. And then I realised I need a commercial kitchen, I need all this knowledge that I don't have, I need connections into the food industry to understand, you know, the rules, the regulations, compliance, the food safety. And I had a part of that because of my chef training, but not all of it by any means. And so when I Googled kitchen incubator or how do I get help with this commercial kitchen thing, There was a crowd in Chicago called Kitchen Chicago and they were a cafe and they just started calling themselves an incubator. So I reached out to them. That's so interesting. And it is interesting, you're right, because that term wasn't really used up until then. So I hadn't actually heard of it. And, in fact, even in the US there weren't that many kitchen incubators, like places you could get help and connections to the food industry. So it was very interesting. Since then, obviously, they're on every street corner and they deal in all sorts of different cuisines and groups and purposes. It hasn't quite taken off in Australia, even 15 years later when I when I opened up mine. But, um, yeah, then 
it was just on its way. And and what made you think that this could be something that could be like an entrepreneurial path forward for you? Oh, Scotty, you must have heard this a million times. I needed it, therefore everyone else <laughs> needs it, right? Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So now I know better, but <laughs> then it was about, well, hang on, if if I can't find what I need, other people must be having the same problem. And it turns out they kind of were because everyone knows they need a kitchen when, when they're making a food product and everyone knows they need a product when they're trying to get into retail. So that flow-on was, okay, so I'll build a kitchen but we'll have all the experts in, in the network and we'll build that community of like-minded people, but also those trusted experts that have that food industry experience. So whether that's in brand design or labeling, printing, uh, website development, there's all that nuance around the food industry. That's just that little bit different to everyone else. Hmm. What, hmm. How did you validate that there was actually a need for this or what was the, you know, what was the validation process, even if you weren't calling that at the time? I actually set up a website because that was the simplest thing to do. And I put a questionnaire on there that said, if this was available, would you use it? If so, fill in this questionnaire. No, you, I got, a, a plus. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. You didn't just go out and build a kitchen. Oh, <laughs> well, sometimes it felt like it. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> because people actually didn't realize what I was asking. They they heard the kitchen bit and then they said, yes, I'd use your kitchen. And then I'd go, okay, so I've got 100 um, responses in like two or three months and I've just gone, oh, my goodness this is amazing. I'm going to start this. And so I started planning it. When it actually came to them paying for that Mm -hmm. kitchen, that's, you know, when the rubber hits the ground, right? Yes. 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 Were you still working a corporate job while you were doing that? I was up until the construction started. And then I'd, I'd just taken out a lease on the retail space in Bentley in Melbourne suburbs. I'd taken quite a while to find it because I had certain criteria about, you know, how that space was going to be used. Mm-hmm. And things like, you know, it couldn't have steps in the middle because obviously a kitchen has to be um, accessible, easily accessible. And so just those little things made it hard to find the right space. But once I found the right space, I got in touch with Tony Schindler, who was actually one of the very first employers I had as a mature age student straight out of cooking school. He had a chef background, but he was also then setting up commercial kitchen spaces. So Mm. Mm. he and I worked very closely together over the next probably six, eight months, and we fitted out that kitchen space as if it was a a manufacturing kind of space, but um, with enough space for two businesses at least to use it at the same time and the right equipment. What was it that gave you the confidence to jump out of the um, paid work that you were doing and back yourself to do this? What was that point? 
Well, because everyone comes at their project with a passion. Mm -hmm. And I think it was passion that got me there. What I was doing, which I see my clients doing now, what I what I was doing was actually trying to find the data to back up that passion. Mm. Mm. So once I found that and I got the validation from the questionnaires and I understood who it was that was going to be looking for a kitchen, I I took the leap because I knew I had a gut feeling. <laughs> You know, that there were more people out there. If that was the tip of the iceberg that I'd touched on, then mm. I knew there was going to be enough customers for, to make it work. Mm. What yeah. felt like the biggest risk to you in all of this? Or was there a moment where it felt like it was too big a risk? Was there a moment when I was curled up under the desk in the office at the <laughs> new kitchen going, oh, my God, what have I done? Yeah. <laughs> There was. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, and that was, you know, you you have a budget in mind, no matter what you're doing, you have a budget in mind. This one was particularly big because of the nature of the construction that was going on. And I had gone over budget and it just kept coming. And we were like three quarters of the way through and I've just gone, oh, my goodness. I, I just can't not do it anymore like we're so far in now there's no reason for me to you know stop it because I'm already three quarters of the way there so it took me a while to recoup that um, infrastructure cost till 2017 I had that kitchen so over the next like nine years it was validated month on month on month. I would get clients coming in. I would talk to them about their business plans. They'd come for the kitchen, but I'd hijack the conversation <laughs> into who's your customer? What are they going to pay for this? Where are you going to, how are you going to get it to them? All those kind of things. And so from those conversations, even though they were married to their product and in the kitchen and being creative, While they were doing that, I was gathering the network of experts that I knew they needed and building that community, you know, conducting networking events. Mm. In the beginning, I made some great connections with the NICE program that was running in the area. That's the new enterprise incentive scheme, which is support for low-income earners to get into their own businesses. It was called Small Business Victoria then. It was running a lot of um, events and workshops and I'd got a lot of information from attending those workshops, so I made a connection with them as soon as I had a location to do the same, to give back, to, you know, make sure that the lessons I learned were passed on. Sorry, I don't know a lot, obviously, about the kitchen incubator space, but do you, I would imagine that a lot of them have a commercial interest behind it in terms of, sure, we'll give you a chance to see if you can make this thing, but then we're going to have a, a stake in it if it is successful. What what did, what was the model that you were using in that space? It was straight kitchen hire in the beginning, Scotty. It was, it was really, no, I know you need a kitchen. You don't know that you need anything else, so you don't see the value in it. So it truly was straight kitchen hire, and I would basically just be there to answer their questions and then point them to 
the events that we ran or the events that I knew other people were running, introduce them to the experts, get them involved in the networking group, you know, those kind of things. It's almost like business support by stealth. <laughs> well, you know, we were chatting before we started recording that one reason why I was so excited to talk to you is that the principles of good product thinking and validation are not, they weren't invented by you know, software startups. They work across the board and you have just exemplified that beautifully, but also that in the, the tech space, often when people have a idea that requires development and if they're not a developer, they go step one to find a developer whose job is not to validate their business idea. And unless yeah. they happen upon somebody who has that understanding and those skills, which they are out there, but it's not a given, people would have been very fortunate to have come to your space as opposed to some of those others for those benefits. But it is hard when people don't see the value in it. At the product bus, there are times when I've spoken to people where they will be like, oh, well, I don't need coaching. And you're like, okay, well then, cool. So that's, this is probably not for you. You need to go and hire someone. Oh, what, you can't afford to hire someone? Okay, you need coaching. <laughs> but you, yeah. can't, you can't force them into taking advice. And even when they do, sometimes really they just want an outcome and trying to work out what that yes. is. So how did you kind of assess whether or not people were going to be a good fit for that space? Oh, I would, I would just, like I said before, just, just, make sure that they were able to rent it. So when I spoke to them, when they first reached out for help, it was almost always for access to the kitchen. Sure. So when I asked them all those questions about who's your customer, it, it made them think, that's for sure, but they were still keen on getting into the kitchen. So it, it's almost like a captive audience then. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? How, which retailers are you going into? What volume do you think you can make in this kitchen? And that's where they saw the value. When I was talking practicalities, which mm -hmm. we spoke about before, yes, you're making it at home at the moment in your unregistered kitchen. Here mm -hmm. you can, you know, register your business because we're compliant. You can use the equipment that I've made available for you and you can quadruple your output in the same time. Therefore, what you would have spent producing your product in any other kitchen you've quartered the price of and so then you talk about pricing and costing mm. right so mm. it's about um and then they see the value so even though i was charging 40 dollars an hour which is was quite a lot in the beginning in their minds yeah, it was like having your mother do your washing for you at home, right? <laughs> like what value do you put on that, right? <laughs> you're still it. living at home. You still get your meals. You're still, that's kind of how an incubator works in a, in a location sense. So you said that you had that space till 2017. What happened mm -hmm. then? Did you pivot or just move or? No, no. My, well, my nine-year lease had come up and, you know, the usual conversations with landlords was happening about, rent increases. And then mm -hmm. um, I actually got to run a kitchen incubator under contract at a university for the next couple of years. So by then the incubator tag was becoming more popular, but there was still, like when I started, there were no 
co-working spaces. Incubator wasn't really applied to a business sense. You know, it was a serviced office that you got at best, mm-hmm. but not co-working space, not incubator. And so that whole community mm. kind of evolved over the years that I had before, after I'd started. Mm. So when it came 2017 and they were looking for someone to help them both set up their strategy for that space but also then manage it, I did that under contract for the next couple of years. And then I pivoted, which at at the time, end of 2019, felt like, what have I done? Like I don't have a location. The location was what was um attracting everybody to me. I've just gone out and I'm, I don't have a location and then COVID hit early 2020 and whew, thank goodness I don't have a location. <laughs> as soon as you said you left it in 2017, I was like, are you a fortune teller? Did you have some sort of crystal ball to know that you would be so glad to not have a location when COVID came? Exactly, right? It, it's just coincidence, gosh. You know, end of 2019 was when the contract ended and I took the opportunity to go for a holiday because obviously running your own thing, you don't take extended holidays. (laughs) (laughs) And then I came back and I started a a program with um, one of the Western Suburbs Councils in Melbourne where we'd taken in, in a group of 10 of their constituents who had an interest in their food business and we had delivered workshops, like a series of workshops to them And as soon as we started that, COVID hit and I suddenly had to put it online. So it was a bit of an adventure between the end of 2019 and mid-2020, you know. All these changes and it just tested your resilience like you wouldn't believe. (laughs) And and so what does it look like now? So around 2016-17, I renamed because I knew I was moving out of the kitchen. I was knew I was moving out of a location. And of course, the My Other Kitchen company name didn't make sense. I'd named it that in the beginning because I thought very long and hard about how I wanted people to feel while they were in there. And I wanted them to take ownership. And so the My Other Kitchen, I, I felt like in conversation, they would say, oh, look, I make this fantastic chilli jam. And someone would say, well, where do you make it? Oh, my other kitchen. That was the thinking around my other kitchen. But when I didn't have a kitchen, it didn't make sense. So the business of food then came on board. That's great. And I concentrated basically on, you know, providing business support and that network and that community. I love that. And I think it's such a, you know, one of those things you can only thank luck for, really, that you were positioned already to you know, be in that space because it obviously a lot of people that were in the physical space business, you know, like if you're running a co-working space, for example, oh. incredibly, incredibly challenging. Yeah. So let's, let's now think a little bit about what people in the early stages can learn from these experiences. So knowing what you know now, what advice would you give to people about starting the entrepreneurial journey you know it is a it's a risk and i find people often either are too risk averse where they're tire kicking you know for a long time and they're just not ready to take that leap or put in you know what's needed to really see if they can have a go or 
they're not risk averse enough and they just jump into the void with no safety net. So how, what advice would you give people about what sort of readiness you need or willingness you need to be ready to take that risk and do it well? Well, I think it's a little different for me with my clients uh, because they, like I said before, they come with a passion for a product. Mm -hmm. They, someone's told them that they have a fantastic product, they should sell it. And it's about learning what it takes to get it to market, learning what it takes to actually get it produced in the first place, especially in the food industry because of all the compliance and the specialised expertise that's required to, to get that kind of product, even to your test market. So do your homework. Understand who's going to be your customer. Are they actually going to pay what you need them to pay? And if not, find another customer or reconsider what it is that you want to deliver. It's um, mm. kind of the same as anything. I, I don't think mm. it is that different from a lot of tech startups because people often come out of an industry that they know well and they have an idea or even something that they've been using. Yeah. And what they don't realize is that they might know their industry well, but that doesn't mean that they know how to sell to their industry or that that they have something that other people actually want in a way that they can make repeatable sales from. And so that kind of you know piece, like I said at the beginning of, well, I needed this so other people might need it, is something that has to be validated. And, yes. you know, it t- takes a time where if you just go off and build something, actually, before we chatted today, I was thinking about that kind of analogy of people, if you're a you know, cooking show fan you know, or c- competition fan, where people will kind of serve something and then the judges will be like, did you taste this before you, because it's under seasoned. And they're like, oh no, I didn't. Yeah. And I mean, I made that mistake myself, but not, not on television. And uh, I don't have the, I actually love cooking, but when it comes to plating up, I'd be like, you know, I'm good. I'll just go home now. I had a great time. It's fine. I can't kind of do all that. But you know, like it's a bit like that with products where people are like, they love it and they, they think it's amazing, but it's like, wait, have you actually asked anybody else if they love it and they love it enough to pay for it and gotten good responses? And we often skip that step. We're like, this is amazing. I follow the recipe. It's great. Oh, you didn't season it. So it tastes like bum you know like yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 absolutely one of the questions I was asking my clients for a lot of years and I still do it now and again in the right context is tell me about the first 10 people that are going to buy it that you don't know Ooh, I love that so when we're finding out our target market who is it that is going to buy it and and a lot of times a food product will go through the validation process of a farmer's market, for example, Mm. before they even get to a shelf. And that's a great testing ground. You know, the first 10 people that you don't know that are actually going to pay money for this. I love that question. I love it. (laughs) And the other thing too, I think, is something that I'm starting to ask is, you know, when you are selling this, are you selling the same thing with the same messaging? Because often with software, with services in the early stages, there can be a lot of custom requirements, bespoke development for particular clients. You can do that successfully to a number of clients without actually being ready to scale because you don't have that product that people will buy as is with the same messaging. So it's not repeatable. 
And I think that goes to that same piece of trying to understand who our who our buyers are and and in a bigger ecosystem where you might be selling into a, a business, it's it, yes, the users uh, might love your product, but are they the buyers? And if they're not, who will buy? All those questions that often we don't think about, people don't think about until they start coming up against the barriers and they're like, uh-oh, we haven't tailored this in the right way. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the way I think a food business is a little different to everybody else is not only in the compliance that, that goes with that, you know, production, but also the nature of how customers buy food. Because if you think about it, you need to taste it, you need to see it, you need to smell it before you can know that you're going to buy it again. Mm. And mm. so that whole product development piece kind of does put the horse before the cart. It is like you need to have this thing in your hand to be able to show your customers, taste it, feel it, smell it, know how they're going to use it. Yeah. And that's where the compliance comes in. And the bootstrapping. Yes. I don't know if you ever read um, The Purple Cow. It's a Seth Godin um, book. He talks about the kind of uh, death of that television-driven marketing where you just need to take a product and work out an mm. ad campaign that made me as a kid know that I needed to have that cereal. I needed to, yeah. you know, and it was, it was not about how it tasted really. I mean, that never worked because my parents were boring. Um, but the, for, for a lot of, <laughs> they were like, no, <laughs> but that thing of now we, people are much more discerning about mm. what tastes good, the quality of food, and so it is, it's not just, yeah, you got to get a huge ad campaign that makes everybody want to buy chicken tonight or something, <laughs> you know, was, yeah. which, yeah. Oh, wow, I thought about that for a while, but you know, that was, that, that was a viral yeah. food campaign from a long time ago now, right? Where now most people don't watch broadcast television. They don't watch commercials. They don't, it doesn't kind of operate yeah. in that way. So that, exactly. that would definitely have an influence. Yeah. It's interesting because I use the link canvas to. Um, you know, ask all those one-page business plan questions of of a new founder. And one of the sectors in there is the existing alternatives and the way that you understand who your competitors are and how you're different and, and making that parallel comparison with Chicken Tonight, for example. So I had a lady, I've had a lady just recently with a range of Thai sauces and so I'm going, so who's your comparative product? And, you know, it is like chicken tonight, Thai. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that is very interesting. I think it, it's very challenging for people when you understand that you can have something that is great, that is objectively really good, that for whatever reason may not be commercially successful. Oh. So where have you seen examples of that where it's like tastes great but just can't see how it will sell it's not really about how it won't sell i think it's about finding where the right customer is we had a crowd come to us just before covid they were really successful in the food service sector so they were supplying to very large caterers to very large venues and they had a vegan snack product which was amazing it was it tastes great fitted a lot of categories they'd already found their niche in food service but they wanted to take it to a retail market 
and we went down that path and we did the homework. But once it got to the selling of it, it meant there was a lot more effort and a lot more middlemen than they had envisaged or, you know, done that kind of homework on. And so the work getting to a retail stage was actually a lot more than they were, I suppose, willing to put into it when they already had something that was working for them. Yeah, that that's quite interesting. I, I think particularly in Australia where we've done a bit of work with a couple of clients in the food space from a, a digital perspective and the tr- trying to find ways for smaller producers to actually get to market outside of the supermarket um, structure because it's so small in, in yeah. our country. So it's very yes. difficult to get in, easy to be priced out. What sort of avenues really are there for people to make a good income from a food product if it's not going to get on the shelves of Coles and, and Woolies? Yeah, it obviously depends on the product. And some products end up being ingredients in other people's products, which is kind of interesting. Wonder Snack was actually a great, they were a nut blend, and she only had four blends of four flavours. And Christy actually was very clever. She got into airport lounges, hotel concierge kind of scenarios. And there was something we would call almost food service, you know, that, that, yes, it's packaged, but it's going to a totally different customer in a different way. We also had nougat bars being made in the kitchen. And Shannon was also very savvy about, you know, this is a very low-cost product to make, but if you package it nicely and take it to your gift market, they'll buy three packets at a time, five packets at a time, not just one, and Mm. then, you know, she tapped into that market. So there are other ways to do it. It just depends on the product. I would have mentioned too that some people love the idea of making something that they can make money from that people will enjoy, but then the actual work and hustle of getting it commercialized is something that doesn't really work for them. Yeah, it's often in the selling, as you mentioned before. They're the ones with the story. They're the ones with the passion. They know how it was built. They're the ones to therefore get in front of their customers or, or their retailers, however they want to do that. But something stops them. None of us are good at the sales, I don't think. Well, very few of us, shall I very say few. that. Yeah. The more that you know, the less confident that you feel. But one thing that I am often drilling into my clients is no one can sell this until you can. Ah, uh, yes. The, and, you know, you may not feel like a salesperson, but as you just said, it was your idea. You've got the story. And at the early stages of this, people are going to invest in you and in the story, as well as the product. In the tech space, we have this real misunderstanding of how things launch. People will say, this is the Uber for cat litter. And you're like, what does that mean? Because Uber Uber didn't launch as a global phenomenon. It launched by lots of little tests and pieces and people, yes. I call it unicorn in a box. They're like, I just want to yeah. build this thing and then have lots of people give me money for it and I never have to talk to any of them. And it just doesn't—it doesn't work. Yeah. Like it does—it just does not happen. I, and I can see—I I guess I was just kind of relating that experience to. It's like me loving cooking but not enjoying plating up. I would just be like, "Oh no, I, you know, I, I'm good. Yeah, I'm—I made it. People like it. I'm okay." And you know, it's a different kind of entrepreneurship. So just—just just 
wrapping up and thank you so much for your insights. And I can see just how beneficial this is for people from different industries to listen to, because obviously there are things that are specific to food, but so the principles are really, you know, the same in that space. So if you were going to, if you just had one piece of advice that you could give to somebody starting out food or just business, what would that be? That would be find your customer. It's, It's so hard to take yourself out of your shoes with all your preconceptions and put yourself in your customer's shoes without any of those things you know, clouding your judgment or skewing your answers. I think take yourself out of your shoes and put yourself into your customers. I love it. Jane, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Scotty. You can find out more about Jane Del Rosso and the business of food at businessoffood.com.au. And that's it for the Bootstrap for this week. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe or follow the show wherever you listen. And of course, we'd love a positive rating and review to help others find our program. Even better, share the show with a friend or just someone around you. We're not proud. We'll take anyone's download. We now have our own LinkedIn page. Just search The Bootstrap Startups from Scratch. We're also on Instagram and we are very close to launching our YouTube channel, where you'll be able to see videos of all the interviews that we've done today, as well as some other great content that we are working on. You can also find the product bus on most platforms and interact with the bootstrap post there. We would love to hear from you. The bootstrap is a production of Swivel Media and the product bus. It was developed by me, Scotty Allen and Declan McGee. This episode was produced and written by Declan McGee. We were edited by Sammy Perriman. Our original sound design was by Rob Clark. If you're an early stage founder looking for resources and practical help, check out theproductbus.com and get in touch.